Hi, I'm Rick Steves. When you talk about traveling off the beaten path in Asia, it doesn't get much more rough and tumble than Afghanistan. While coalition troops are busy with their work, there are actually people traveling through Afghanistan, and travel writer Paul Klammer tells us how and why. It's a fantastic, wild anarchy. It's, 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 it's Afghanistan. Also, we'll check in with adventure cyclist Willie Weir. He'll bring us details on his recent bike trip from Bangkok into Laos. Willie brings us fresh stories from the road and explains how different things are in Laos compared to its more developed neighbor, Thailand. It takes almost more effort to stay on the beaten path in Laos. It's just that opposite. There's, there's that one main road, and outside of it, you are, you are literally off the beaten path. We'll also touch on the serious matter of all those landmines that remain in both Afghanistan and Laos. We're about to find out what a bumpy ride is all about and why some travelers wouldn't have it any other way. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Paul Klammer joins us for an intrepid traveler's guide to Afghanistan. And later, Willie Weir brings us tales from his adventurous bike trip from Thailand to Laos. It's Extreme Travel Adventures on today's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and today we're traveling to Afghanistan. Really, Afghanistan. Tourists go to Afghanistan. Travelers go to Afghanistan. And I'm talking with a man who's writing the first edition of the Afghanistan Guidebook, published by Lonely Planet. He's already written the um, Afghanistan chapter for the Central Asia Guidebook by Lonely Planet. Paul Klammer joins us from England. Paul, thanks for um, joining us. That's no problem. It's nice to be with you. Now, you were in Afghanistan just, what, six or eight weeks ago. That's right. Just, I just came, came back about, uh, about two months ago, six weeks ago. That's right. Are there actually tourists in Afghanistan? Uh, there are a few. Um, they're small in number, although you might initially be surprised on how many there are. There are a few um, travel companies who are trying to set things up with a, a tourist organization there, but there are a small number there. But, of course, there are a lot of um, international workers in Afghanistan at the moment. So you're writing a guidebook to Afghanistan. You understand that the sales prospects are, are pretty pretty bleak, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> that was the, one of the first things that my editor told me when we were uh, talking about the project. Um, Initially, I think this is a sort of a, a stepping stone. It's, it's putting a, a marker down for the future in Afghanistan in the hope that things are going to progress there. Of course, a large market is going to be people initially just going out there to work in Kabul and places like that. But I think that once the reconstruction progresses, then, you know, the intrepid tourists will be following that. Now, what motivates you? You sound like a reasonably smart person. This is not a way just to make a lot of money. Um, why would you bother even traveling there yourself? And why would you put information together to help other people travel there? Well, I've always been very much interested in history. It's, it's a part of the world that I've traveled around um, in quite a lot, a lot of the neighboring countries, Iran, Pakistan, and things like that. The first time that I traveled there in Afghanistan, it was still actually under the control of the Taliban. And a lot of people, you know, just looked at me as if I was crazy. My, my friends, particularly my parents, my poor parents, when I went there. But I always thought that the, the historically and culturally, it was a very interesting country. But also politically, at the time, I thought, well, you know, it, it's a country that's been very much neglected. You know, as sadly, we all learned just a few years ago. But it, as a place for visiting, it, it does have a huge amount of potential for future tourists. And it was, it was a place that a lot of people visited, you know, many years ago. Uh, I'm talking with Paul Klammer, who writes the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Central Asia, and the, the Afghanistan chapter in that book, and he's currently working on the first edition of the Afghanistan Guidebook. Paul, a long, long time ago, I watched a movie called The Man Who Would Be King, and it just inspired me, and it inspired me to go to the Hindu Kush. I don't know exactly where the Hindu Kush is, but I wanted to go to something like that, and I went to Afghanistan, and, and it really was worthwhile. Have you, did you see that movie? I saw that movie when I was about eight years old, so I think it's my parents' fault for planting that early seed of inspiration in, in my mind. I thought I could be a, that I was going to be a character out of a Rudyard Kipling novel and go off and discover great riches and fortunes up in the mountains of Central Asia, um, which hasn't quite happened, but it, it's still a book um, and a film that, that I love very much. It's the only movie I've ever watched where I, I sat there when it was over and I just stayed for the next showing. I watched it two times in a row. It was so good. It's a ripping yarn. When you have that sort of romantic image of Central Asia, British colonialism, and, and this poignant mix of East and West, 
Is any of that still there in war-torn Afghanistan? I was very interested on my first visit there. I was taking a taxi in Kabul, and I was talking to the taxi driver in my very bad Persian, the main language they speak there. And we were talking about the fact that I was British and where I came from, and he could instantly tell me things about what had happened 150 years ago when the British Army were there and, and we got into a whole heap of trouble when, when we were there back in Queen Victoria's reign. So there is still a sort of a resonance with a lot of the history um, and the ancient history there. People still remember, people even still talk about Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great as being major historical figures in Afghanistan. So yes, I, I think you, you do get these resonances, and particularly if, if you read up a little about the country beforehand, there's a lot of that sort of thing that you can plug into. Yes, absolutely. You know, Paul, when I, when I look at some of my photographs of people in Afghanistan that I took, there's a dignity in these people, and they stand so proud, and there's just there's a, a directness in their eyes, and it just feels like there's a sort of a heritage of, of superpower in this country, poverty-stricken and, and tragic as it is today. Of course, we shouldn't uh, pretend that Afghanistan isn't anything but a desperately poor country. Uh, one thing that always strikes me, though, when, when I travel, whether I'm taking uh, a taxi or whether I'm having tea in a tea house and kebabs or something like that, is the sort of dignity and these people who really do have nothing and, and in the last 30 years have gone through a world of troubles that, that most of us couldn't even begin to imagine. But that uh, dignity, that hospitality always comes through. I mean, it's something that, that people have talked about and written about when they've been visiting Afghanistan for, for several hundred years now. And it, and it still is there, which you don't see in a lot of other parts of, uh, of the world there. Now, when I was in Afghanistan, it was just after the Russian invasion, and uh, the Russian tanks were parked in the squares. And the, I remember the menus had prices crossed out, and prices were discounted, and it said thanks to the Russian Revolution. That's a long time ago. Since then... The Americans, what, funded the Taliban to fight against the Russians. And uh, give me just a thumbnail of what's happened in the last 30 well, years politically. Of course, the Taliban did were sort of the orphans of that conflict. You can still see a lot of those Russian tanks, I think, that you would have seen in the 70s. You see them at the side of the roads. They're all destroyed. They've had the, the tracks removed, often flung over the road as a sort of impromptu speed bumps even. The, the, the war against the Russians went on for, for 10 years throughout the entirety of the 80s. The Russians pulled out in, in 89. And after that, it was a country that everyone essentially just forgot. Um, the East and the West just dropped it like a, a hot potato. But there was still this country with a whole lot of arms and a whole lot of people who knew how to fight. Um, they all had their own political differences. And the country really descended in anarchy. And it wasn't until the, sort of the mid-1990s that the Taliban came out of this, and they did bring a sort of a semblance to order to the country, but of course they did it in, in such a fantastically brutal manner, repression of women, of education, all of these sorts of problems, because they had their links to this sort of radical Islamist politics. They were also hosting al-Qaeda and, and Osama bin Laden at the same time. And that's the reason for the most current war, and now the al Taliban has been bombed out of power, and there's a, a government that is a sort of a beginning democratic government in uh, America has helped create in hopes of uh, having a, a government that'll be a bulwark against uh, terrorist activities. Is that right? Of course, of course. Yeah. I mean, as, as far as the democracy goes, it's, it's baby steps at the moment. But, you know, they're making, they're making very slow progress, but it's, it's steady progress. And when yeah. I talk to my Afghan friends, I mean, they are still positive and optimistic about the future. Now, when you go today, I would imagine the uh, the American-friendly government of Karzai would welcome tourism because it brings in foreign revenue and it makes friends and it gets them a little window on the West, whereas the Taliban, in areas where the, the warlords are controlling things, would see tourism not as dollars for the economy but as uh, evil Western influence and something they wouldn't promote. Do I have it right there? Absolutely, and it's, it's really mainly in those areas of the south and of the east where, where the Taliban are, are still strong, or where they still have some degree of uh, popular support, and, and they're sort of very much tied in with the opium trade as well. Those are very dangerous areas for Westerners to travel, if unless we, you're traveling with the army. We don't know how things are going to fold in the next months and, and years, but basically you would be wise to stick to areas that are firmly controlled by the government rather than by the Taliban, is that right? It's almost sort of helpful to think really of, of the country as, as almost being two countries. You have this south and eastern part, this sort of very desert areas around Kandahar, Helmand, um, places like this. And these are the sort of the, the Pashtun, these are the, this is the tribes that the Taliban came from. These are the Pashtun areas that still have a lot of the problems. If you travel in the center, the north and the west, where the government has, uh, has made some progress, where the Taliban never really had any natural support, 
even back in, in the 1990s. These, these are the places that, that people are, are really going to go to. And for people who actually want to travel there for sort of tourist purposes, I mean, it's handy because those are actually the places that are more interesting to visit. They have more of the sort of the culture and the heritage and the scenery that I think people would be initially interested in seeing in Afghanistan. Well, that's, that's good news. And people are listening to us now probably thinking, you've got to be kidding, Afghanistan. Are you saying that, I mean, you don't go to Afghanistan to be safe, but are you saying you don't feel reckless when you go to Kabul and you exercise good discretion and choose little side trips you can make and so on? Um, Americans would be nervous about this, but would Germans and Australians and, and other international travelers be there relaxing, having a good time? I think you, you've nailed it on the head there in, in terms of saying discretion. I mean, certainly it would be incredibly irresponsible of me to come here talking to you today um, and say, it's fantastic, let's all go. I mean, to, Afghanistan is not Disneyland. And when the book comes out, it's going to give a start, but it's still things can change very quickly on the ground. So it's very important that the people are going to be getting reliable sources of information that they can trust from the media, from, from organizations within Afghanistan. Um, and initially, I think the first visitors are going to be going, they're not going to be backpacking around like, like people might do in other parts of, uh, of the world, in India or, or in, in Peru, places like this. But they're going to be going with responsible tour operators, of which there are a few who have connections within the country, who know what the situation is, can read the situation, and they can, can look after you and, and, and take you around, you know, with a, with a good degree of security and safety, that, you know, that you can really trust. Okay, so there are reality tour companies. I've had experience with them in El Salvador and Nicaragua during tough times, and, you know, you were just thankful that they knew what was safe and what was responsible. And again, people don't get, go there to, to work on a tan. This is reality travel, and there are people that travel because they want to go to hot spots in order to understand problems that are that are filling the headlines. And there's no better way to understand it, I wouldn't think, than to actually go there yourself. I think actually seeing, going to a, a place like this and seeing what a country is like when it's trying to struggle out of war to see, still see buildings that have been destroyed, but also seeing the new buildings that are being constructed and how people are actually just trying to get on with their lives um, can teach you something that you just can't really understand from watching the television or reading the newspapers. So you're saying that is a valuable travel experience, and uh, if you're looking for an education, Afghanistan might be something worth considering. I wouldn't say it's necessarily somewhere for, for a person's first trip out of the country, but um, it's, you can certainly find out a lot, yeah. <laughs> I bet. A little quick about practicalities for Americans traveling in Afghanistan. Do you need a visa? You do need a visa, um, but they're, they're quite easy to get. There's an embassy in Washington and consulate in New York. But you've got to get it in advance. You don't get it at the airport. You've got to get it in, in advance. That's right. absolutely but, right. But tourists are legally welcome if they go through the proper hoops to go to Afghanistan. If you point. go through all the proper, the proper hoops, then um, that should, really shouldn't be a problem. All right. When I was there, the, there was like one good road in the country, and the rest was quite dusty. I think now there's about two good roads. Two good roads. Which isn't, isn't bad, actually, given that they had 30 years of all they did was destroy things rather than build it. But Do they still have these grand, ornately painted trucks? They, they do. I mean, they're almost works of art, really, trundling along the road, and they're decorated with chains so you can hear them clinking, and the sides are painted with sort of great mountain scenes and pictures of birds and all sorts of things. Yeah, they, they love these sort of decorations and flowers and things, Afghan. Yeah. 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com There's more to discover about Afghanistan coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
877-333-RICK and radio at ricksteves.com. That's how to reach us on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Paul Klammer. Paul writes the uh, Afghanistan chapter of the Lonely Planet Guide to Central Asia, and he's working on the first edition of the Lonely Planet Guide to Afghanistan. Promises to be a huge seller. Maybe not. Hey, we've got Kit on the line in Tacoma, Washington. Kit, thanks for your call. Well, thank you for uh, having me on the air. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I'd spent a couple of weeks in uh, uh, Kabul, as the locals call it, uh, which sounds more like rubble, but... Uh, uh, I noticed a lot of Americans pronounce it Kabul, but uh, the locals seem to call it Kabul. Anyway, when I was there, uh, I did notice some things that uh, apparently it was a, a British influence, and that was that the men uh, seem to wear vests. Uh, they'll have like a, a long flowing, uh, uh, looks like almost like a night shirt or something, uh, but they'll also have a uh, very British-looking vest on over it. And I thought that was interesting. Uh there, there are some nice restaurants where we were. Uh, I was, I was there as a contract worker, and then I spent most of my time at Bagram Air Base, which is maybe a half hour drive from Kabul. But there are some nice restaurants there. I noticed just outside the uh, compound. At one end, there was an Iranian restaurant called Shandi's. They took an old building and and they 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 went with the rustic feel, since you know that look, and uh, they had a tent set up inside. So it looked like you're eating inside a tent, and uh, uh, you know, just a, the whole atmosphere was really great. And then at the other end of the compound, near uh, just outside the the area, uh, was a uh, Croatian restaurant. Everybody called it an Italian one because there's pizza and wine and all, and uh, that was interesting. Now, Kit, what, uh, in what capacity, Kit, were you in Afghanistan? Were you there with the military or working with the military? Yes, I, I was working with a military contract uh, doing help desk work uh, so that so, uh, the soldiers who would normally do that could go out in the field. So you felt and, like um, there, you could, it's sort of like the bases would be sort of the, the springboard, but you could actually um, go little side trips and sightseeing uh, while you were working. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the people I worked with, if I'd been there a little longer, I probably would have gone with him, but uh, he was going out to look at, uh, there was an old uh, ruins of a Colosseum. Uh, I don't know who had built it there, but it wasn't that far from uh, Kabul. So uh, do, do you think people like you could uh, would find a, a guidebook like Paul Clammer's writing handy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I, I think that I'd like to go back sometime, uh, you know, uh, you have to be careful of mines, of course, uh, anywhere. And apparently, there have been uh, there was at least one discovered in the capital that had been recently planted while I was there. Uh, I remember talking to some people who were doing mine clearing, and it was a little bit of a shock for them. So, <laughs> because it was you know a new style, the the old ones are easier to find because they were metal and you can use a metal detector. But the new ones are ceramic, and uh, you have to use special equipment to find them. There's a travel tip. Yes. Uh, and, and I did hear of some uh, military personnel who wandered off into a debris field to look for souvenirs and, you know, uh, ran into tragedies. And uh, you do you did see a lot of uh, beggars who were out there who were lost a leg. So it, yeah. it's kind of a warning, you know, that uh, well, landmines land yeah. are a problem in, in many uh, war-torn countries around the planet, oh, and yeah. anybody who's using common sense will stick to well-worn and established uh, oh, you know, sure, exactly, yeah, but that country in particular, I guess, has supposedly has, has the most uh, in anywhere on the planet. So. Hey, Kit, what kind of reception did you get when you got out uh, away from the people that are working directly with the contractors? Just the, Could you actually connect with local people in a tea house and, and get a sense of what they thought of you? Well, I, I think I could have uh, if I'd been there longer. Um, I did talk with the guards because uh, they were with uh, some, uh, you know, it was like a private security company, and they were guarding uh, the compound, and they invite you up for tea. And, uh, of course, you wanted to bring your own cup because they didn't always clean theirs. Uh, but, uh, but you'd ask them, uh, you know, uh, if it was better now, and they say, oh, yes, there's no... Uh, you know, uh, they would kind of talk in broken English, but the idea, the sense that you got was that there was no shooting in the streets, so it was better. All right. So uh, they, they seemed happy. And plus we saw, uh, we were very close to where the government has their uh, broadcast facilities for radio and television, and uh, they would have uh, tour buses that would pull up there. And uh, you'd see uh, 
the, the upper class Afghanis uh, coming out to get on these buses and uh, take a tour of the city. And 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 at the uh, I remember at the Croatian restaurant I met uh, somebody who had worked with another contracted company, and he introduced me to someone who was from the Norwegian embassy. And the guy casually mentioned that he had uh, gone out and played around a round of golf the other day, and. Uh, uh, so we were surprised to learn that, you know, the capital has a, a golf course. Well, it sounds like the beginnings of a, a little bit of uh, tourism coming back. Thanks, Kit. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Talking with Paul Clammer, who writes the Lonely Planet chapters on Afghanistan in the Central Asia Guidebook, and he's working on the first edition of the Lonely Planet Guide to Afghanistan. Paul, uh, we just talked to Kit there, and, and you know, he was sort of in a, in a sheltered world there with the military and so on. As a traveler, whether you're on a tour or going on your own, will you have an opportunity to get out, and how will you best meet the people and, and be able to sort of feel the pulse of uh, what's going on in the streets in, in Kabul? I think really the, the, the best way that you, that you can get out in any country is just to, to be traveling around on public transport, is to be going to local restaurants, tea houses, and just really getting out there and trying to talk to people and trying to connect to people. Um, it's certainly something, it's interesting what Kit was saying, that when I talk to, to friends who are working out there as contractors or with aid organizations and things, they naturally have um, you know security measures that they have to follow, that we understand, but... Sometimes they say they get a bit frustrated because they don't actually get the chance to, to get out there as much as they would like and really just to walk about in the streets. And You're walking down the street and there's a stall and the guy's selling melons, so you, you buy a slice of melon and you have a chat with him. You know? And I think that, that's what, what people really want to be doing. That's my fondest memory of my travels in Afghanistan is just walking in a different direction every day. I was in Herat, and one day I'd walk in one direction, and I remember just a whole series of little storefronts. Uh, they're just each one of just a few meters wide, and a person busily doing his craft. And it was just a, a cultural and artisan wonderland when I was uh, exploring those towns. It really is. And once you, you make that connection and you show an interest in what they're doing, an invitation to sit down and have tea with them invariably follows. And maybe you, you can't really communicate very well with, with these two languages that you're speaking, but you can make a connection as, as a human on a very basic level. Do you raise your likelihood of getting picked off by some guy with a gun if you let him know you're an American, or does that not really matter? I don't, I don't think it's actually so much of an issue um, as much as people might imagine it would be. Um, Afghans do recognize what America and, and the West did um, at the end of 2001 and 2002, and they helped kick the Taliban out. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of warmth and feeling towards that. Now, some Afghans may grumble that perhaps the reconstruction of things hasn't gone as fast as, as they would have liked. But I don't really think you're going to get a lot of the anti-Western feeling that some people uh, might associate. I mean, you have to remember that most Afghans didn't like the Taliban. I mean, they were the victims of the Taliban as well. So people I mean, they are were the ones who had to live with them every day. So uh, moms and dads are not naming their babies Osama? Absolutely not, no. All right, that's good to know. When we're thinking about going to Afghanistan, give me just a geographical overview. Uh, what are the top two or three touristic highlights? Okay, well, most people are going to, of course, start their trip in Kabul, if, if only that's where the, the planes are going to fly into. Um, from Kabul, you'd want to go out um, to Bamiyan. Um, people might recognize the name Bamiyan. It was the place where there were these giant statues of the Buddha um, that were sort of carved about 1,500 years ago, and it withstood all of this centuries of, of history. And then in March 2001, the, the Taliban dynamited them Wow! in this atrocious act of, of cultural vandalism. But the valley itself, it's right up high in the mountains. It's a very, very beautiful green valley with sort of pink and ochre cliffs. And there are still things to see. And even though they're empty, these niches that the Buddhas stood in, and you've got to think the tallest one is actually sort of 55 yards high, they still have this immense aura and power that they're quite humbling to stand beneath, particularly when you think of, of, of what's happened. When you think about that, it's so easy to condemn the Taliban for doing that, but that's simply, isn't it called iconoclasm? There's been religious fanatics throughout the cultures that have destroyed precious things because... It's, just... it's, it's, it's not been unique to Afghanistan. It's happened, of course, in many other cultures. And of course, actually, a lot of people in Bamiyan, they want to try to rebuild these, these Buddhas because they can remember how it was in the 70s when the tourists right. used to come in and the, sort of the old hippie trail as it was then. And, and a lot of people think, you know, if we can rebuild the Buddhas, then the tourists will, will come back. And, and it's actually a place where most, that's the, probably the first place that, that the travelers will want to go to after that. And, and just outside Bamiyan, there is a series of mountain lakes called the Bandi Amir, which are just like little blue jewels right up against these dusty mountains. And they're, they're just the, quite the most beautiful thing. Now, how far is Bamiyan from Kabul? 
Um, as the crow flies, it's only a couple of hundred miles, but by road it'll take you about 10 hours because it's a mountain road. It's a very bad road. Um, right. So you, you go sort of, it's a little bit punishing on the, on the vehicle and, and on the passengers when, when you get there, but it's a very spectacular road, very beautiful through the mountains. When I was in Kabul, the capital, it occurred to me this is a country of nomadic, uh, countryside, shepherd kind of people. It shouldn't have a big city. It just felt horridly out of place. And I saw people who were just like the people I saw in the villages, uh, but instead of wearing villagers' clothing, they were wearing uniforms and so on. Mm-hmm. And it just was a, a garish kind of, um, I don't know, oxymoronic place. Does, does it still feel that way, or does Kabul have some kind of soul? You've got to really look hard for Kabul. So uh, the population has, has tripled or quadrupled even in the last five years because a lot of the refugees have come back. And, of course, they all, they've all left their villages. Their villages may have been destroyed. They want to come back to the, to the capital where they think they can get jobs. Um, the population of Kabul is about four million now. The air is very bad, a lot of pollution, a lot of traffic jams. Kabul, it's, it's sort of interesting, but it's really somewhere that, that most people want to get out of and, and really just get out into the mountains, into the scenery. You know, that's where I think you find the real heart of Afghanistan. It seems like one of the most interesting sites in Kabul would be the Landmine Museum. Yes, it's, it's, it's possibly not what uh, a lot of people think of as being a very interesting or, or very attractive museum, but it's certainly an eye-opener, and I think it helps people really appreciate the context of the, of the country they're visiting. They have a huge collection of landmines from almost any country you, you care to, to mention that they've collected over the last 30 years. But they also use it as a, a, a training center for the demining crews. I mean, Afghanistan is one of the most heavily mined countries in the world, and you do get to see a lot of amputees. But the, the, the museum itself is absolutely fascinating, particularly because they're using it as, now as, a, as something positive. They're using it to train deminers to, to sort of rid the, the country of this, this real curse. Paul, my first memories of Afghanistan were coming in from Mashhad in Iran, and as soon as we got to the border of Afghanistan, uh, they ripped the, bus, the minibus apart, almost looking for uh, people smuggling things in. Uh, people st- climbed up onto the rooftop, and we packed the minibus, and the bus carried on. Uh, got a few miles into Afghanistan, the bus driver stopped the bus, uh, pulled out a knife and said, the price has just gone up, and we all had to pay double. And then later on, he stopped at a little uh, rest stop, and uh, they were slaughtering a goat, and everybody sat in a circle, and the bus driver got high, and his eyes were all bloodshot, and he said, okay, let's carry on. Uh, that was a bizarre beginning to my Afghanistan experience. Is it that rough and tumble these days when you get out in the countryside? Well, that's, I've never had a, something like that happen to me, but it's certainly it's, it's an area that you're, you're going to be going. You're not necessarily always going to be sleeping in particularly good accommodations. Uh, the roads are almost always going to be very bad. But in a way, you have to treat that as, as part of the experience. I think it would be unfair to think of Afghanistan or to expect Afghanistan to be very developed after what's happened. Sure. No, that's, um, that's what carbonates it, the whole it, experience. You still have that sort of that rugged character yeah. um, and that little edge that sort of that, that makes it such an enticing place for me, that makes it such an enticing country to want to travel in. Now, about the drugs, we always hear about the opium trade. Is smoking marijuana pretty widespread among the people, or is it just the hippie trail kind of thing? There, there is a, a cultural tradition in some parts of the country and within some ethnic groups of, of, of smoking. Um, it's not something I think that, that people really would, foreigner visitors would, would come across a lot because it tends to be a thing that people do privately in their houses. But it's not something I think that, that you're going to encounter very much. But the opium trade is huge now, isn't it? I understand three-quarters of the world's opium crop is grown in, in Afghanistan, and that's about half of the, the country's uh, GDP. It's it's a it's a, a terrifying statistic. Wow. Um, the amount of, of opium that's produced, mainly again, mainly in the south, um, and this is one of the things that's causing the big problem mm-hmm. uh, with the Taliban resurgence because they're sort of right in hock with the opium dealers, with the drug lords, and the, the smuggling gangs across the borders. My favorite city was Herat, and I heard that it was bombed, uh, that it suffered quite a bit in in recent bombings. Is what's Herat like today? Herat did get bombed very badly. The old center, the old core of the city is still largely intact. There's a beautiful, beautiful mosque right in the center of the city. And there's a great big old citadel. The foundations probably date back to the time of Alexander the Great, I mean, thousands of years ago, that you can now go in for the first time and and get these fantastic views over the city. It's a very charming city. Um, And it's almost unique in in Afghanistan in in that it has traffic lights that work and that people actually pay attention to. Traffic lights that work in a city in Afghanistan. Um, In in Herat, I remember standing on the rooftop of my hotel watching torchlit chariots go through the night, and it really did feel like back in biblical times or Alexander the Great or something. 
Uh, sadly, the, the, it's, it's all motor rickshaws and, and cars now. One of the most evocative uh, experiences when you're in Afghanistan is going over Khyber Pass. Now, this is that autonomous region, uh, the kind of the region where a lot of people think Osama might be hanging out. I remember we had to pay a safe passage fee to the uh, uh, tribes people who sort of controlled that territory. Uh, tell me a little bit about, can tourists go over Khyber Pass today, and, and what does that entail? You can, and, and as I think as, as travel trips go, it's one of the most evocative journeys that you can do, crossing between Afghanistan through the Khyber Pass um, and into Pakistan. It's interesting if you do it from the Afghan side, actually, because all the Afghans will tell you, you've got to watch out when you go to Pakistan, because that's a really dangerous country. Um, and in fact, when you, when you cross into Pakistan, that's when you pick up an armed guard, because as you said, there's this sort of autonomous region called the tribal areas where the government writ has never run, the Pakistani government has never controlled it, the British never controlled it back in the days of the 19th century. Wow. Um, but you snake through the mountains and you can see it, one side of the road there's going to be another track and that's where a lot of smugglers go through. But often actually they're not smuggling things that you would think, they're not smuggling guns and opium, they might be smuggling DVD players, televisions and fridges. All right. And little fortresses, little fortresses on hilltops with their own flags, it really feels like a bunch of people who are running their own mini countries that don't even show up on the map. It does. It's, it's an incredibly old. I think it's the largest tribal area actually in the world. And yeah, these, they, even the houses, the, the, the compounds you say, they are like fortresses with turrets and loopholes and things. Yeah. Paul Klammer, uh, you are uh, producing and running a website, www.kabulcaravan.com. Kabulcaravan.com. Uh, is this designed to help travelers keep up to date on uh, travel in Afghanistan? That's exactly it. I, I first wrote it after I'd been traveling there the first time because I was quite frustrated. There hadn't been any information really that, that people could access. So that's why I decided to set this, um, set this website up. And now together we're doing that and with the Learning Planet book, then uh, I think we're getting a lot more uh, good information out there. Well, when I'm in Ireland, I like to see a hurling match. In Germany, I like to see a, a soccer game. In uh, Afghanistan, I suppose you'd want to see a Buzkashi game, wouldn't you? Buzkashi, that's the, the number one Afghan sport. Tell me. Um, it's a, a little bit unusual, but it's a very Afghan character. It's, if you can imagine a game of American football, but played on horseback, and instead of a ball, you've got the, the body of a dead goat. The teams, there are two teams. You can have anything from a half a dozen players up to uh, 200 players. They play it on the plains of the north. It's about as rough and tumble as you can get. I mean, the players are fighting each other on the same team, trying to pick up this dead goat and then carry it to the, the center circle and they can win and it's, it's, a, it's a thing of great prestige and the horses are very prized, they're very looked after and it's, it's a fantastic wild anarchy, it's, 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 it's Afghanistan. Fantastic wild anarchy, it's Afghanistan. Paul Klammer, author of the upcoming Lonely Planet Guide to Afghanistan, thanks very much for giving us an understanding of this quite misunderstood corner of the planet. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. By the way, Paul's publisher tells us the new Afghanistan guidebook from Lonely Planet is due out this August. Next, we're taking time to get acquainted with the locals by bike with stories from Willie Weir's recent ride in Southeast Asia. Our middle name today is Adventure on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And in our travels, we're always trying to get close to the cultures, close to the people. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. And I think one of the most powerful ways to get connecting with the local culture is by bicycle. Leaving the crowds, leaving the cities, and finding yourself immersed in a faraway land. And I've got a man who's an expert at that with me right now, Willie Weir. Willie Weir is an adventure cyclist, and he's written a great book called Spoke Songs, which tells stories of his most thrilling bike rides. And he's fresh back from a new trip with his wife, Kat. And Willie spent 10 weeks, 2,500 miles, biking through northern Thailand and Laos. Willie, thanks for uh, dropping by. It's my pleasure, Rick. 10 weeks, 2,500 miles, Laos and Thailand. Now, you could go anywhere. Uh, Why would you go to Laos and Thailand? Well, to be honest with you, it uh, was one of those trips that changed even as we arrived. We were going to Southeast Asia. We were going to travel in Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia. And one of the things, and it's a mistake that you can uh, repeatedly make, but you have to learn the lesson, is that if you're going to be on a bicycle and you try to do too much, Mm -hmm. uh, you kind of destroy 
the wonderful things that a bicycle brings. If you try to do too many miles or you look at your map and get, oh, wow, we can get here and everywhere, then you're up on the main roads and you're, all of a sudden you think, why didn't I take the bus? So we started cycling in Thailand and we were thinking about Vietnam and how we were going to work that out, whatever. And we realized, you know what? We've planned too much of a trip for the time we're going to be in. Actually, it was closer to 12 or 13 weeks in the whole journey. And uh, so we said, okay, Vietnam is going to be another another separate journey. And we decided to focus just on Thailand and Laos. Was that a good move? It was a fabulous move. Yeah. It was the you know, one of the best decisions. You know, if you've done a lot of made. travel by train and car mm-hmm. and so on, you really have that different mindset. But by bicycle... Less is more. Mm-hmm. It always is. And that's the hard thing because when you look in the guidebooks, it's, it's always going to tell you the 10 places that you should go in each country. And if you try to do that by bicycle, unless you've got that three years planned out, uh, you're going to be very disappointed. Okay. Now, your trip was pretty evenly split between, uh, well, you did Laos mm-hmm. and northern Thailand. Contrast those two cultures for me. I would say for people that are going to go as far as a traveler's perspective, Thailand is this ability to kind of ease your way into Southeast Asia in that you have the exotic also surrounded by the familiar. I never thought that I would be able to get a premium coffee or latte in just about every day that I traveled. But premium coffee and and these stands in Thailand have become the rage. I mean, you think of Starbucks here, and there it's called Black Canyon. Thailand really is the waiting pool for Southeast Asia adventures. I would, I would say so. I mean, it's very easy. You really can travel and each day find yourself in a fairly nice guest house. You can travel on very wonderful buses, uh, air-conditioned, always well-maintained, and find yourself very often in areas where people do speak English. And for most people, the, the big question is you got the noisy capital city, which you got to check out, Bangkok. I love mm-hmm. Bangkok. Stay near SkyTrain. Stay near SkyTrain? <laughs> yes. What's that? SkyTrain is the, the public transit. It's their rail system. And you can get to a lot of parts of Bangkok on this system. And so if you stay next to a station, okay. you can get around Bangkok easily. You stay up three miles away from it, you're in trouble. Good tip. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, for a lot of people, do I go south to Phuket in the beaches or do Mm -hmm. I go north to the Chiang Mai area in the hill tribes? Now, as a cyclist, I will tell you, as much as beaches are great, I tend to avoid them. Very often, there are limited roads, so there's a main road and not many arterials coming off going into beaches. Mm -hmm. Also, I find that if you spend too much time on the beach in any country, you're going to learn about the tourist culture, not about the local culture. I mean, you can get away in some of those islands off in Thailand and and find yourself with an amazing cultural experience. But most people who head down to the beaches are going to find themselves surrounded by backpackers. Fruity drinks, Scandinavian backpackers, (laughs) hanging out with Aussies. Exactly. And we're living cheap and living large in Thailand. And you could be in Mexico or some, you know, you get, you're looking out the ocean and, and it's only going to be what's behind you that might change. Okay, so, so you chose the hill tribes of the north. Are there still the uh, traditional outfits and these independent, these fiercely independent hill tribes that are sort of f- autonomous? Yeah, you will find. But in, in Thailand, you are going to have to get farther off the beaten track than you are on a bicycle. You're going to have to go on a hill tribe trek. And yeah. those have become so popular uh, that... Um, I think very different than people who did 25 years ago heading up into the hill tribes of of northern Thailand. But that still is available. And you will find, in fact, uh, Kat and I were up uh, in a Chinese village within Thailand that was up in the hills. And they were having a hill tribe festival there. And this was not for... Well, I guess it was for uh, partially for Thai tourists, but the locals as well. And what I loved was at this particular little festival that they had, they had these tasting booths. And you'd go around and get a pair of chopsticks, and you could try the different cuisine of the different hill tribes around the wow. Karen and the Hmong. And the di- it, was, it was absolutely fabulous. A, a bite of Thailand. It, yeah. Did you have any health problems from eating all of that good stuff? Not at all. And I will, t- I will say this. The worst meal we had in all of Thailand was still good. Hmm. I oh, I just I mean I love Thai That's food to begin with, too. but you know the difference of being in a Thai restaurant here and then there where everything is so fresh. I mean that lemongrass is just right there. And to find a festival for the locals, not for the tourists. Right. That's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. What we came across, and it was a, I guess that time of the year with the schools, but all of these school organized track meets where it was the entire school out there all running and doing all these prizes and whatever. But of course this is more needed now because in Thailand. 
you don't see kids on bicycles anymore. They're all on scooters. It's huh. scooter mania. It is the craziest thing I've ever seen. I mean, just everybody who can get a scooter has got one. And uh, I mean, there there so are. So that's the Volkswagen bug of that society. Huh? Ex- that's what exactly. Has. They're all over. And the problem with that, especially in the areas north of of uh, Bangkok, is that the sidewalks have disappeared. Well, they haven't disappeared. They've become scooter parking stalls. And wow. and people will say, and the locals are telling us that, you know, ties don't walk anywhere. Well, part of it is because the sidewalks have become these places for all, where all the scooters. So Thailand's got the big metabolism going on. It's a successful democratic constitutional monarchy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you got lots of tourism and you got things organized and plenty of fancy guest houses. You cross the border into Laos. You will cross that river. Well, when we crossed over at a place called Chiang Kong over to Waisai, which is up in the north northeast of Thailand, northwest of, of, mm-hmm. of Laos, and literally just just night and day difference. I mean, you, most of northern Laos gets electricity two hours a night. They have a, a, a national beer, which is Beer Lao, which is actually uh, very close to a Czech beer, an excellent beer. The only the cruel thing about it is if you're a cyclist or a traveler is that because they don't have electricity two hours a day, you're always going to be drinking warm beer. You're not going to have that you know cooler cold beer unless you order it at one minute to nine, you know, at that very end of when they've had that two hours of electricity and somebody might have an icebox. And so that difference of Thailand that has all of the coffee bars and all the, Mm -hmm. you know, the scooters and people, you know, and SUVs, people in Thailand that's become the status symbol. And you see these people driving these enormous SUVs that can barely fit on the road, but that's the status symbol. Cross over the river and it's Literally, like you've you've gone back, you know, fifty years it's or like more. It's like Germany and Romania during the Cold War, almost. Yes. I mean, one oh. powerhouse, free, and everything, and the mm-hmm. next one is a poor communist country. Yes, definitely. You find people in northern Laos. You won't even find scooters up there, and you actually see in the, in the Hmong villages people transporting goods on these wooden carts that they're pushing. You're a rich, obviously a rich Westerner by their standards. Mm-hmm. You come in there with your fancy bike and your wife. How is the reception in some little humble town that's grown up on communist propaganda? Treated like absolute royalty in a lot of ways. And it's been that way all around the world, and it wasn't any different in, in, in Thailand and or Laos. And I really can't say that there was a contrast in how we were treated by people, other than the difference that, of course, if you're in an area that's touristed, uh, very often you are seen as a client, Right. As you're, opposed you're, to a dollars, guest, yeah. right? And and that's just a different relationship. But if you took a village in Thailand where, or a town that we were in that, where there normally weren't tourists, we were invited in on New Year's Eve. We were in this mostly Chinese town in northern Thailand. So most of the inhabitants were, were, were Chinese. And it was New Year's Eve and we were walking. We ended up staying at uh, the local uh, love motel, a uh, hotel for, for prostitution in a sense. They have that big curtain that you can take over so you can't see the car that's driven into the spot. But the other hotel was completely booked. So here we were and, okay, we walked down the street. Well, we ended up being invited into probably the wealthiest family in that city into their home to celebrate New Year's because they saw us walking by and wondered what these two Westerners were doing. Right. And uh, they were having a barbecue. So they just, and we, we spent several hours there and then they asked us where we were staying and we told them they just <laughs> laughed and they walked us over to the Love Motel. And they so, charged by the hour. Uh, we could have had an hourly rate. We went for the full <laughs> night's the rate. Full night's yeah, rate. Yeah. I think it was a better Nothing deal. The At best least I hope you it and your was. Wife. Oh, exactly. Okay. Now, when you're going into Laos, uh, most people know the, the main things to see and do in Thailand, but Laos to me is quite, uh, quite a mystery. What are the highlights from a tourism point of view in Laos? The highlights, I think, for most people who've traveled there is a trip along the Mekong River. And you can, from Hue Sai up in the north, travel on a two-day ride that heads down and goes into Luang Prabang. So a lot of people go up north in Thailand and get to Luang Prabang, which is the old capital city of Laos. And the boat leaves from the Laos side okay, of the Mekong. Okay, but they're going along the border, basically. Yeah. So you are bordering Thailand all and, and Lao all the way down, and then you end up in Luang Prabang. And then the road from there down to Vientiane, which is the capital city, is a beautiful, stunningly beautiful road. And there are tourist amenities along the How way. How is it stunningly beautiful? Uh, lots of karst mountains uh, that you'll, you'll find that you also see pictures of in, in Vietnam and, and China. What's karst? Very green karst. Um, Limestone that over the years, it's from erosion rather than mountains, you know, coming out from below. That kind of soft, uh, soft mountain as opposed to the jagged peak that very often you see the pictures of in Southeast Asia. Very, very dramatic. And that road, I mean, I talked to a man who traveled there in 1988. And now it's a it's a one and a half day ride. It took him five days to get wow. from Luang Prabang to Vientiane. So things have changed incredibly. 
can you take the bike on the boat and then get off and mm-hmm. bike on? Yeah, they the put top? it on the roof. They put it on the roof of the boat, and you have to make sure that you have to get the guy's attention. Make sure that he attaches that bike to the yeah. roof because they're very busy. And uh, at one point, some boat was coming across, and the guy hadn't attached it, and there was a rope because all these boats come in at once. And it, it started with it was literally going to scrape our bicycles off the top of the roof. And fortunately, somebody caught him. And, and in all your travels over there, how many times did you lash your bike onto some other form of transportation? Well, let's see. Um, from Bangkok up to Chiang Mai, we cycled the whole way, and then we cycled around the Mae Sung Loop, mm-hmm. 600 kilometers, um, 4,000 curves on this this route that you go around there. Then we, we had the a little tiny boat going across the Mekong, then the bigger boat as we went along to Luang Prabang, and then it was pretty much cycling all the way down. But then we wanted to get down to the south because we wanted to see the 4,000 islands, right. and we were kind of running out of time. And so from Vientiane to head down to Paxi, we took an overnight bus. And then from there, we cycled down to the area of 4,000 Islands where the Mekong kind of spreads out, becomes more delta-ish, and before it goes over this big set of falls and an area where we can actually see some freshwater dolphins that are endangered, and we had a chance to see. So you put your bike on the top of the bus for that trip? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Now tell me about the capital of uh, Laos. Vientiane is the capital city. Luang Prabang is really, if you want to look as far as architecture and beautiful wats and museums, that's the place to go. Vientiane is a nice place to visit, but if you're mm-hmm. looking for one place to spend time for restaurants and whatever, that's the place to go. What, and what's the name of that? Luang Prabang. Luang Prabang. Now, Van Vieng is in between those two places, and it's a little place, uh, Van Vieng, and it's what's known as Chill Out Town. And it's this little place on the map that's on, on a river, beautiful spot, but it has over the years become the place where every backpacker comes to, to chill out. Why is that? Well, it was a cheap place. Um, part of it is just the fact that everybody says go there, but part of it is a beautiful river, surrounded by karst mountains. There are probably more backpackers there than there are locals. Some people love it. Uh, to me, in, in some ways, it's kind of the bad side or the worst side of travel in that here are backpackers who have kind of change the culture of the area. And to give a perfect example, if you go down Van Vieng, there are all these restaurants and, and people give the backpackers what they want. And you go down and there are two restaurants that are on either side of, of this street and they have this lounge seating that you can sit in and they play from 6.30 in the morning till 11 p.m. at night on all of these video screens, reruns of the television series Friends. Hmm. And you'll find people who are there for seven hours uh, and drinking cheap beer and watching. You know, I think like you've traveled halfway around the world and you're you're watching a rerun of Friends. I mean, to me, it's it's just sad. (laughs) So even in Laos, you can find something that's grotesquely touristed. I think everywhere in the world, sadly. But yes. But you can always get away. It's so I mean, getting off the beaten path takes effort in Thailand. It takes almost more effort to stay on the beaten path in Laos. It's just that opposite. There's there's that one main road, and outside of it, you are you are literally off the beaten path. No sort of um, remnants of anti-Americanism because of the Vietnam War. Well, personally, we didn't feel that, but we went northeast and then came around through Pont Savon, which is an area of called the Plain of Jars. Now, as an American, that is an incredibly sobering place to be because Kat and I couldn't camp in that area. And the reason we couldn't is because there is more unexploded ordnance in that area than any other place on Earth. Hmm. We, the United States dropped more bombs on Laos per capita than any other country on the planet Earth in the secret war of Laos. And what was interesting is that our Congress didn't know anything about it for the longest time. Hmm. And... As an American being there and seeing, and what, what happens is we drop cluster bombs, which by the way, which were made by Honeywell. Um, we drop cluster bombs in throughout this area and 10 to 30% of them didn't explode. Now, okay, wars happen and those things happen, but here is a, is a, a weapon that is killing people 30 years, 40 years later. And what happens is that when these cluster bombs open up, they release these hundreds of bombies, as they call them, about the size of a baseball. And when they don't explode, they just hang out there. And they're the size that little kids find, throw around, whatever. And they're made because they, they're packed with hundreds of, of steel ball bearings. So they're made to kill people, unlike a mine, which is made to maim people. Hmm. So here's a country that already is landlocked. It's already poor. And in order to be able to farm in this region, you have to pay people to go out and clear any farmland you're going to have of all of these unexploded ordnance. And they've actually had areas where bombies have ended up landing in a palm tree that was two feet tall at the time and has now grown to 60 feet in the air. 
and a windstorm drops it down, kills somebody. I mean, it's, so it's some insane. of this land is probably too expensive to uh, oh. fix up for farming. Oh, easily. I mean, we we passed by an area that had been they'd gone ahead and burned it, and then there were eleven guys in these white suits going through with metal detectors. You got me thinking about so many travel opportunities here. Just very quickly, Willie, once you got there, what was the cost per day, you figure, for you and your wife? Well, I would say that easily, you know, 10 to $20 a day is... For your room and is, board and is, incidentals yeah. as you travel. And, and, of course, in Laos, there were days where it was just hard to find anywhere to spend money, right. even if we wanted right. to. Right. Did you ever get sick or have any health problems over the course of your trip? Mm-hmm. I had uh, one case of, of the runs, and uh, we were staying in a particular house that... Uh, uh, the outhouse was quite a challenge to get to. And uh, so on my fifth trip, I actually think I broke the, my personal record of, of going around. There was a big pit I had to go around and... and Jumping uh, over so, the goats yeah, right. and so on. And uh, <laughs> 2,500 miles, you and your wife, any bike accidents, any, any problems that way? You know, the scariest thing that we did in all of our journey was to rent a scooter. And uh, we almost had uh, a man came by, almost clipped us, and he ended up hitting the man in front of us. And they both went sprawling in the middle of the road. And I thought to myself... Uh, get me back on my bicycle. I just, it's, you know, and I tell you, if you be safe, don't rent a scooter. Everybody that I saw that had scrapes and scars right. had can, been on scooters. I can show you a few scooter scars <laughs> on my body if you want to see them. Okay, Willie, you got me for one moment on that trip. What would you share with me? Oh, in, in Laos, there was a moment where we couldn't find food and we ended up stopping by this little village and we saw this woman she just had this extra big smile and cat went up there and and again very little language we just a few words and this woman graciously opened up her door and walked in and cooked us a meal but actually sat down stools and had us sit right next to her as and she had a a, a baby who who was 5 weeks old that she was holding on to while she made breakfast for us and the kids looking in from the, in the windows from this hut, basically looking in at us, and uh, crystal blue sky up up at maybe four you know four or five thousand feet, it just just magic. This wow. is why I do this. Willie Weir, author of Spoke Songs, taking us to some beautiful corners of this planet, specifically Laos and northern Thailand. Willie, it's always great to talk to you, and uh, man, you get me inspired. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. You'll also find a link to post your thoughts for other listeners, to send your email questions for Rick, and to submit an original haiku for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's all in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.